everyone. It's a pleasure to welcome you to this LSE online public event. Uh, my name is uh, Fiona Steele and I'm Professor of Statistics and Head of the LSE Department of Statistics, which is hosting today's event. As organisations and, and governments increasingly make use of new forms of data and, and data science tools to inform their decision making, it's crucial to examine whether the algorithms used and, and the input data could in fact lead to discriminatory practices. So uh, I'm delighted to welcome today's speakers, uh, Catherine Dignazio and Lauren Klein, whose recent book, Data Feminism, explores exactly these issues. They look at the biases and equality, inequalities in the data we collect and in the methods of data analysis and demonstrate how feminist thinking can guide us towards more ethical and empowering data science practices. Their book, published last year, has already been highly cited and received a great deal of praise. So just for what, to give you one example, it's been described as a powerful call to action for everyone who cares about how technology reflects and reproduces social hierarchies and injustices. Catherine Dignazio is an assistant professor of urban science and planning at MIT. She's also director of the MIT Data Plus Feminism Lab, which uses data and computational methods to work towards gender and racial um, equity. She's carried out research at the intersection of technology and design and social justice. And she's also an artist and a designer whose projects have won uh, multiple awards. Lauren Klein is Winship Distinguished Research Professor and Associate Professor in the Departments of English and of Quantitative Theory and Methods at Emory University. She works at the intersection of digital humanities, data science and early American literature with a research focus on issues of gender and race. Catherine and Lauren's talk today will draw on concepts and examples from their book, as well as a range of, of recent research projects. Just a few words about the, the format for the event. Catherine and Lauren will give a joint presentation of around 40 minutes, and we will then turn to your questions. You can submit your questions via the Q&A function at any point in the event, and I'll do my very best to, uh, to uh, put as many of them as possible to Lauren and Catherine at the end. The event's been recorded, and we hope it will be available online very soon. So Catherine and Lauren, it's, it's really great to have you with us. Um, over to you whenever you're ready. Great. Uh, thank you so much, Fiona. Uh, thank you to the whole team there helping to produce the event. We really are honored by the invitation and um, honored to be with you here, at least in virtual space for, for this hour of time. So, um, so yeah, many thanks. Um, and we're, we're glad it worked out timing wise too, because we, it, it is daylight savings here in the US. So this is always a, a little bit of, a, a bit risky to plan things for the weekend after daylight savings, but it worked. Um, so I am going to, without further ado, share the screen and give you a little bit of the, the plan for today. Um, so Lauren and I are going to talk about one of the motivating questions for writing data feminism, which is this one. Uh, what does feminist data science look like? Um, and so the the roadmap from here is we want to talk a little bit about our motivations for for writing data feminism uh, we like to ground folks you know when we're talking about a feminist data science or you know feminism the feminism of the title we like to ground folks in uh, sort of which feminism which feminist theorists are we drawing from um, We'll tell you a little bit about our seven principles of data feminism and show you some examples of those that we highlight in the book. Um, and then Lauren and I are also gonna use this as an opportunity to talk about some of our own uh, recent projects uh, in our own labs um, and how we ourselves are trying to mobilize these principles of data feminism and the um, both sort of successes, but also questions and tensions that arise for us in doing that. Um, 
So you all gave a really nice introduction to us. Uh, so I don't feel like I have to introduce ourselves anymore. Um, maybe just a couple words to say about the book. Um, it came out uh, last uh, year, uh, spring 2020, right as COVID uh, was also coming out. Um, and it is open access. So uh, we love when people buy the book, so please, great if you want to buy the book it's a beautiful book um but then it also is an open access book so you can oh yeah lauren's gonna demo <laughs> but it, yeah it's really lovely and there's a, lo a lot of wonderful images and visualizations um but you can also just uh, access the open access version at datafeminism.io and then you click on read the book uh, and that'll take you to the right link um so I think from here, I'm going to just turn it over to Lauren and uh, she can say hello and then kick us off. Thanks so much, Catherine and Fiona for such a kind introduction and for having us here. And thank you to everyone for listening on this Monday evening or afternoon, depending on where you're calling in from. So I'm just going to jump right in and begin by saying that the motivating premise of our book is that in the world today, data is a tremendous form of power. Data-driven systems have been used for first-round resume screening at major corporations, including places like Amazon, where they have been found to discriminate against women applicants. Um, a fairly egregious example in the United States and Pennsylvania, they've been used to flag parents who are suspected of child abuse very often unfairly and with truly devastating consequences, as you can imagine. Um, there was the recent fiasco around the algorithm used to predict last year's A-level scores when the exams were canceled due to the pandemic. I could go on, you know, very easily, in fact. But the main point is this. Data are indeed incredibly powerful, but that power is currently wielded unequally. And more specifically, it's wielded by a small and homogenous group of corporations and other well-resourced institutions who are the ones who have the resources to design and deploy these data systems for their own profit and at the expense of everyone else. So this is where feminism enters in. And what we do in the book is explain how feminism and intersectional feminism in particular has been, has been, excuse me, focused on precisely this thing, um, on imbalances of power and the structural forces that cause them for a very long time. But I just want to back up one minute. Uh, you might be listening to this and thinking, but wait, I thought feminism was about women or maybe gender. Um, but here you're saying that it's about power. So how, how did we get here? So I'm going to take just a minute to explain. And I will say that you're actually right in thinking that feminism at its core entails a belief in equality for all genders. But if you look around you, you realize that this goal of equality has not yet been realized in the world. And so feminism also necessarily involves organized activity on behalf of women and non-binary people to make this goal of equality the reality. And then feminism has a third definition, which is a set of theories and ideas. So these theories began by thinking through issues of inequality with respect to sex and gender. But the past 40 or so years of scholarship and also the current and historical political reality have brought many, many more dimensions of inequality into the conversation. So these include race, class, sexuality, ability, and so on. And so this brings me back around to this idea of intersectional feminism, which is a term you may already be familiar with. This comes to us from the work of women of color feminists and black feminists in particular. And what feminism gains from concepts like the Kampahi River Collective's formulation of, quote, interlocking systems of oppression, uh, Kimberly Crenshaw's term intersectionality, you could think also of Patricia Hill Collins's idea of the matrix of domination. These are all frameworks that structure critiques of power. In other words, the reason why certain people, including but not limited to women, might experience oppression on the one hand or privilege on the other. 
And the intersection and intersectionality comes from the view that it's not possible to isolate certain forces of privilege or oppression from others. So while we might be interested in the effects of sexism, for example, uh, we might, we, what we must do is recognize how other forces of power, like classism, like racism, like colonialism, and so on, how these forces interlock and intersect with each other in ways that are impossible to separate, and notably also in ways that compound their effects. And then one more thing to emphasize here, which may already be evident, but I want to make explicit, is that intersectionality doesn't just describe markers of individual identity. So it doesn't just mean, you know, like I, Lauren Klein, I am a white cisgender woman. I live in the global north and the U.S. south. It's not just describing those aspects of my identity. What intersectionality is describing are the structural forces of power and their intersection that produce the effects that I experience as a result of those aspects of my individual or group identities. And it's been the work of intersectional feminism that has really foregrounded this conversation about forces of power. So the basic argument that we make in the book is that intersectional feminism, when applied to the unequal balance of power in data science, can help that power be challenged, can help it be rebalanced, and ultimately help it be changed. So uh, what we do in the book is to use the teachings of intersectional feminism, and then along with other ideas from feminist activism and critical thought, um, in order to arrive at these seven principles for doing more ethical and equitable data science. So these are principles to inform practice and action. Um, and you uh, might note uh, something that relates to what Lauren was just talking about, uh, which is that the first two principles here have to do with power. So examine power and challenge power are the, the first and the really fundamental principles of data feminism. And they're really at the heart of the intersectional feminist project overall. Um, but then the principles also include things like rethinking binaries and hierarchies elevating emotion and embodiment, embracing pluralism, considering context and making labor visible. Um, and so throughout the rest of this presentation, what we're gonna try to do is um, touch on and attempt to give examples of uh, each of these principles in action. But maybe one of the important things to say on this slide is that this is actually how the book is structured as well. So the book has seven chapters. Each chapter is structured around one of these principles. Um, and one of the things we tried to do is really assume no prior background necessarily in um, feminist theory or in women's and gender studies on the one hand, um, nor necessarily in uh, data science or statistics or um, sort of other sort of quantitative methods on the other hand. Um, and so we try in each chapter to introduce the reader to uh, the feminist thinkers that have led to the formulation of that principle, um, and then show examples of people who are already right now today in the world um, sort of enacting that principle in their practices with data. Um, and the goal here with these principles was really to in a way operationalize feminism for data science, to try to think about Again, like what does feminist data science look like? How do we, how do, we do data science in a feminist way? Um, so this being geared towards people who are already working with data, for people who want to work with data, or even for people who want to refuse to work with data because refusal is an important sort of um, feminist position as well when you're faced with bad choices. Um, and so, so yeah, so I think from here, uh, we will uh, return to each of these principles through the rest of the talk um, and try to show you some of the examples that we talk about in the book, as well as some examples that are emerging uh, from our own uh, research since the book has been done. So one of the projects that we talk about really early on in the book is this one. It's called the Library of Missing Data Sets. It's by the artist and educator Mimi Onuoha. <clears throat> Excuse me. And it's very central to this principle of examining power. So 
The project is displayed in two ways. So the first is as a GitHub repository, which lists these missing data sets that you can see here. That's just a screenshot of the GitHub website. Um, so you can read or you can actually Google this while I'm talking. You'll see titles like trans people killed or injured in instances of hate crime or people excluded from public housing because of criminal records. So this artwork, it was created pre-COVID, but I think all of us can recognize the ways that COVID has had such disparate impacts across social groups and around the world. It's really awakened us all to the dangers of this type of missing data. So in any case, just uh, what you're looking at, the second way you can encounter this artwork is as a physical installation. That's the physical, the uh, file cabinet that you see on the left. And the idea is that you walk into a gallery, you see this file cabinet with folders, you read the names of the data sets on the tabs. Um, you might go to open one that you think seems interesting or important. Um, but when you do, you discover that the folder is empty, right? The data sets in this case are physically missing. And the point that Onuoha is trying to make in this piece with the empty file folders and the lists of missing data sets is that these data sets, they're missing for a reason. And the reason is this profound imbalance of power with respect to data collection in the world today. So this imbalance of power is what determines what data are collected and what data are not or in turn, what research is conducted and what research is not. Again, governments have this power, moneyed institutions have this power, and minoritized groups generally do not. So this is why a feminist approach to data and to data science begins with an analysis of power, because far too often the data sets that we can access and in turn the questions that they prompt have been overdetermined by this imbalance of power in the world. And so just to build on this idea of uh, this idea from Onuoha of missing data sets, um, we also in the chapter about uh, challenging power, give the example of work by Maria Salguero on the topic of feminicide uh, in the Mexican context. Uh, so for those of you who don't know, feminicides are gender related killings of women and girls. They include cis and trans women. Um, feminicide is legally defined as a crime actually in all Latin American countries. Um, and this is largely thanks to the strength of the Latin American feminist movement at, at putting it on the public agenda uh, in the, the last 15 years. Um, however, even though it's you know, specified in the legal code, the state does not systematically collect data about feminicides. Um, and so this, this sort of um, lack of attention to implementation and data collection is the subject of emerging public anger in Latin America. Um, so those of you um, who don't know it yet, you can go check out the hashtag ni una menos, uh, not one woman less. Um, because of the way in which the state neglects to fully implement its own laws and provisions. Um, and so Maria Salguero was um, frustrated by this, this lack of action um, to a really pressing uh, problem. And so she resolved to head straight towards that problem and collect the missing data herself. Um, and so because she's been doing this uh, data collection for now the past five years, um, she's now compiled the largest public archive of feminicides in the Mexican context. Um, and so the way that she does this is she spends two to four hours every single day logging these violent deaths on a Google map that you can see here um, that she derives from uh, media reports and also from official data sources. And in fact, now that she has been doing the work for so long, she also has a really extensive network of folks on social media and WhatsApp who um, send her cases as well. Um, so using her database, uh, she has helped families locate loved ones. She's provided data to journalists and NGOs, and she's testified in front of Mexico's Congress multiple times. And so in, the, in data feminism, um, Lauren and I talk about this as a form of what you might call feminist counter data. Um, so this is a kind of an activist data collection that steps in when the state and other institutions have systematically failed to ensure the basic safety of their population. Like they are not counting and measuring the right things. Um, and so this 
um, counter data represents one way to use data to challenge power. Um, and so there's a very important caveat here um, to counter data, which is that for any given social problem, um, it doesn't necessarily follow that a good strategy for addressing it is to go out and collect a bunch of data about it. Um, and so in these cases, we have to always think about, um, of course, who are we making visible to whom by collecting these data? So there's ways in which, um, you know, rendering uh, populations and groups that are already marginalized, rendering them visible, particularly to official institutions that may uh, work to stigmatize and harm them, um, this may actually not be a good strategy, uh, right? So we just have to keep that in mind when we think about whether collecting counter data is a good idea or not. Um, but in the case of uh, Latin American um, movements around feminicide, activists have determined that this is an effective way forward. And in fact, it's one of the central uh, demands from movements to governments is that they uh, count and measure the problem um, in both expanded and um, somewhat adequate ways, because um, there are many, many places where they're not counting at all. Um, and so this is where I'm going to transition into some newer work. Um, where we are trying to sort of enact these, um, the data feminism principles in this newer research project. Um, and so one of the things that happened um, as we were writing data feminism is, you know, I actually conducted an interview with Maria Salguero uh, to, to be able to write about her work. Um, and then I was on sabbatical uh, revising data feminism and started connecting with groups in Argentina who are also working on the topic of feminicide. Um, and realized uh, through these conversations that Maria Salguero is far from the only person or group who is collecting and publishing uh, data about feminicide. Um, and so in fact, there's many, especially there's very, a great many grassroots efforts um, across Latin America, um, but actually globally around the world. Um, and so we've been uh, my team and I have been tracking these. There's actually over 150 projects that we've been uh, able to locate so far. Um, the majority of these efforts are located in Latin America where feminist movements have really you know, put this on the public agenda. Um, but there are many in our own home country of the United States as well. Um, and there are a, great, a good number of efforts that monitor um, specific types of feminicide um, as it intersects with racism, colonialism, or uh, cis-heterosexism. Uh, and so these groups are using counter data collection to challenge power, meaning they are trying to locate instances of these violent deaths of women um, by compiling spreadsheets, uh, publishing analyses, publishing maps, publishing stories. Um, and their goals are ultimately um, multiple, but to shift public policy, as well as to draw public attention to the disproportionate violence faced by women, um, and or in some cases, indigenous people and or queer and trans people, uh, simply for being who they are. Um, and so together with a, a a group of folks, um, we are working on a project that we formed called uh, Data Against Feminicide. Um, and so first I wanna say is like a way of reflecting on two principles of data feminism, both uh, embracing pluralism and considering context. I wanna tell you what the project is not. <laughs> it might sound like a weird way to start, um, but I wanna tell you that it's not something first. Um, it is not the one big global feminicide observatory of the entire world. Um, and so I, I say that because that tends to be the move, especially in um, data science and, and um, quantification is to like get all of the data and put it in one big database um, so that it can be analyzed and, uh, and so on. Um, centralize it, right? Um, but you know, in conversations with our leadership team and with collaborators, um, this exercise would have uh, perpetuated significant instances of erasure and missing data. Because if we think about who are collecting feminicide data, these are 
folks who are grounded in their communities, like Maria Salguero is, in their context, they understand the unique reasons uh, for any given context that are motivating uh, gender-related killings. Um, and they have that kind of um, locally driven expertise to be able to recognize and log cases. Um, so if we just tried to like, dump it all into a database, we're going to actually be um, erasing a lot of that local knowledge. And we'll actually be doing, you know, we'll, we'll get, be getting things wrong. Um, and then also at the same time, the other reason for not centralizing um, is because it would have diverted resources and attention from the work that these 150 plus groups around the world are already doing, like they're on the ground doing this work. Um, and it would have diverted attention to you know, an elite institution in the global north who ostensibly has all of the data, right? So those are two strong reasons sort of not to do it like that. Um, instead, we were guided by our activist partner, Elena suarez Bal. Um, and so we understood that the best way to combat missing data in this space is to value the expertise of the groups who are already doing the work. Um, and so this aligns with these principles of embracing pluralism and considering context. Um, and so the pro what the project consists of, it's a qualitative research project. So we are interviewing activists to understand their data processing pipelines, how they map and monitor feminicide. It's a participatory design project where we are co-designing uh, digital and data-driven tools to support their work. Um, and then finally, it's a growing and global community of practice for people who are working on feminicide and data so that they might, um, you know, we're building tools, but we're also building communities. Um, the work is not at all only by me. It's uh, three co-leads of the team, myself, Elena, who I mentioned already, and Silvana Fumega, who's um, research director of the Latin American Initiative for Open Data. Um, along with our project partner, Rahul Bargov, and then a host of student researchers um, who have been working on this for the past couple of years. And so, like I said, one of the principles that we're working really hard to integrate is this idea of embracing pluralism. Um, so I wanna just take a moment and talk a little bit about what that means for data science. Um, so today there's been very little work on uh, modeling, even in theory, or even theorizing uh, what a participatory process for data science look like, looks like. This stands in pretty sharp contrast to other fields, uh, which have a long-standing experimentation as well as research with public process, with public participation, with co-design. Um, and here I'm thinking of uh, fields like urban planning and design which have robust participation models. They don't always do it right, but they have robust ways of thinking about participation. Um, and so following the work of Donna Haraway, um, a commitment to feminist knowledge production means that our knowledge is actually more robust when we pool our perspectives, meaning when we bring more people to the table, um, we have a chance at producing a more robust kind of knowledge, a more robust uh, kind of feminist objectivity. Um, Yet, when we're embracing pluralism in the process of doing data science, you know, we can't bring everybody to the table. So how do we think about that and whose voices do we prioritize in a public process? Uh, following the work of Sandra Harding, Patricia Hill Collins, and Shawan Bardell, feminist design has a really clear answer for this, um, which is that it takes power into account and it centers the experiences of the people at the edges and the margins first and foremost, and then makes decisions and design from the outside in. Um, so, you know, say you're, you know, designing a system or a tool or uh, doing an analysis um, for a group of people. A lot of times the way we do things in data is we say, oh, okay, we're gonna work on the needs of the people here in this middle ground, and we're gonna meet the needs of 80% of people. Um, and feminist design would actually do the opposite of that. So feminist design would start at the edges and the margins first and realize that by meeting those needs, we're actually meeting everybody's needs um, plus some. Um, and so this is a perspective we're taking in the Data Against Feminicide Project. So we're convening activists and civil society groups, again, who are already doing the work to collect data about feminicide. Um, we're trying to understand their informatic practices and design tools with them 
for how we, they can integrate new or adapted data-driven tools that might support and sustain their labor. So to date uh, in Data Against Feminicide, uh, we have conducted both qualitative and co-design research. Our focus has been on the Americas, um, North, South and Central America. Uh, we've been interviewing um, both activists and NGOs about their motivations, definitions, categories, their labor, including the emotional labor of monitoring some a phenomenon that is um, violent, um, like feminicide. Um, and in parallel, we've also uh, worked closely with um, first two partners, one in Latin America, one in the US, um, to, in a co-design process. We did a number of co-design sessions with the two partners. Um, we built a first version of our tools from those sessions, and then we piloted those tools now with seven groups uh, across the Americas. Um, and so I'll just quickly um, show you the tools that emerged from this um, co-design process. Um, and so one of the tools looks like this. Uh, it is a browser extension um, and it's called the Data Highlighter. Um, and this is a tool um, that is designed to uh, support activists who are collecting counter data um, from media uh, articles about feminicide specifically. So often what happens is um, activists receive an alert or they get a name they go out and they search for media articles about that particular person. Um, and so they end up scanning a great number of news media articles for relevant data to then copy and paste into their databases. Um, and so what the data highlighter is designed to do is to facilitate that reading and scanning process um, through the browser. Um, so it's very, it's, it's actually a quite simple tool. It just automatically highlights all of the um, people, places, and dates that show up in a web page. And it can also highlight custom words that um, the person uh, or group might be looking for um, in different colors and so on. Um, so that's, that's one uh, sort of simple tool that we've designed and piloted. Um, and then the next tool is the email alerts tool. And this one is a little bit more complicated. Um, but basically the way that you can think about it is a uh, is like Google Alerts for folks that have uh, worked with Google Alerts previously. Um, however, this is Google Alerts uh, very specifically tailored for detecting feminicide in news media articles in a specific geography and language. Um, and uh, so what it does from the activist perspective is they get delivered daily or weekly um, a set of news media articles that we, the system has determined to have a likely high probability of describing feminicide. Um, and so on the back end of this, there's slightly more complicated things happening. We actually have uh, machine learning models, um, which we've trained on hand annotated data sets of news media articles, um, which uh, detect a likelihood that the, the news media article describes a feminicide and then sort of let the alert pass through the system um, to the activist if it meets a certain threshold. Um, and then just one takeaway I want to highlight about um, this particular from, that, that emerged from the pilot with the groups um, which maybe we can return to in the Q&A. One of our findings is that our machine learning classifiers were working really quite well on distinguishing what you might call general feminicide, so like deaths of women described in news media articles. However, they worked very poorly on racialized forms of feminicide. So um, detecting cases of missing and murdered indigenous women and girls, for example, or we have another group in our pilot who murders, uh, sorry, who, uh, who monitors uh, black women killed in police violence. Um, and in fact, our classifiers worked really poorly on finding these forms of violence. Um, and so one of our realizations is that we needed to go back to the drawing board and continue iterating on our, on our models. Um, and then one final uh, point I wanted to make here uh, is that um, one of the things that we've realized through this process as well um, is around this idea of making labor visible, which is one of the data feminism principles. Um, and 
we early on in the process and when we were talking with activists and civil society groups, um, we pitched the idea of like, well, what if we could just automate all this work for you? You know, we can go out and try to detect these cases of feminicide from monitoring news media articles. We could try to automatically extract all the details and put them in your databases. Um, and the activists actually really pushed back on this idea um, because for them, they, um, this actually removed what they felt like was a really important part of their work, collecting counter data, which is the emotional labor of sort of witnessing these unjust deaths. Um, they actually see it as a form of care work that they're performing and didn't desire uh, full automation. And so um, for that reason, um, we uh, sort of stopped pursuing that idea. Um, and, uh, you know, again, it brings up this idea of how uh, recognizing the labor that's involved in this work and, and valuing the labor is a kind of central goal here specifically of the activists. Um, so that's that's sort of how we're thinking about these things as we're moving forward in this project, but it's a very emerging um, work to date uh, and still sort of in development. Um, so here, I think I wanna shift over to Lauren so she can talk about some of her recent work and um, kick us off into a discussion of invisible labor. Sure. So, you know, as Catherine started to mention, the theoretical framework for understanding the value and significance of invisible labor is a feminist one. There is this whole field of feminist labor studies, which draws from the original example of invisible labor, which is housework, right? Um, so housework is invisible in two ways. One, it takes place inside the home, so it's literally out of sight. But for another, it's unpaid. So it's also invisible to the marketplace. And because it's invisible to the marketplace, so meaning it doesn't earn anyone money, it's also unvalued, at least within the context of a capitalist society in which the amount that we pay for services is assumed to reflect the some sort of uh, larger value of those actual services and the role that they perform. So one of the things that feminist labor studies scholars have given us is a word for this type of invisible labor. Um, it's reproductive labor. And this word came about as a way of distinguishing it both from the productive labor of the marketplace um, and then what traditional accounts of labor call unproductive labor, meaning that those forms of labor didn't result in anything that could be sold, right? Um, but if you think about housework and related tasks like caring for children as reproductive labor, it becomes really clear that this labor is in fact the very thing that allows the productive part of the economy to reproduce, to continue, right? Um, and we see this all over the web in all of our sort of social media likes and our Facebook posts and the content that we feed into these large corporations that allow them to reproduce and keep on going. And we've also seen ample evidence of the importance of actual physical reproductive labor in the past two years as the pandemic brought about the collapse of childcare structures that would sort of otherwise enable all of us to do the research that we're, that we're paid to do, right? Um, so I'm going to turn now to some of my own research. Uh, my own research is largely historical, and it, it uh, takes a couple of different forms. But I'm going to talk right now about a project that I've been working on for the past couple of years. It's a set of papers about questions of invisible labor um, and also about power in the context of the abolitionist movement of the 19th century United States. Um, and I've been doing some of this work on my own and also in collaboration with a few other people who you'll hear more about in a minute. I just wanna give you a teeny bit more of historical context about this movement. Um, and I'll just say, you know, it's not an understatement to say that this abolitionist movement, it's one of the most important social movements in you know, arguably the world because it led to the abolition of slavery in the United States, right? Um, but it remains interesting and topical to scholars today because of how that end of slavery was accomplished. And more specifically, who helped to achieve it, right? It was a multiracial coalition of both men and women. And they all coalesced around this common goal of ending slavery. But very, very crucially, the, this really diverse set of constituents, they didn't always agree about the means by which that goal should be accomplished. Like, you know, do we burn it all down or do we wait for gradual change? 
Do we push everyone towards the center in order to achieve greater consensus and more people on board? Or is there no room for moderation when human freedom is on the line? Um, and I hope you can start to see these same questions about political change, about ends versus means, they still strongly resonate all over today. So in any case, a lot of the early work on this project involved assembling a data set of historical newspapers that could even, before we could even sort of begin to answer the questions we wanted to ask. And it took literally years. And while this isn't a main principle that we name in the book, I think it's worth contrasting this sort of slower, more intentional approach to data collection, which takes history and culture and context into account, sort of contrasting this with the move fast and break things approach that characterizes so much of data science work today. I mean, you know, you could just think of the among the many reasons why we experience so much sexism and racism and other forms of oppression in, for example, like these large language models that are so popular right now, is that they were trained on data that was selected because it was both big and just because it was there and easy to get, right? And not because anyone had put any thought into what it might mean to curate a big data set that took these potential harms into account. Um, in any case, so uh, with respect to our team, you know, once we finally had our data set ready to explore, we set it on questions about what more precisely these newspapers had to say. And so what you're looking at here are the results of a topical analysis that I conducted on the contents of two newspapers, um, one edited by someone named Lydia Mariah Child, who was white, and the other by Marianne Shad, who was black. And in this particular paper, I draw out the significance of these sets of topics in terms of our need to analyze the burdens of these two women's editorial labor, first of all, as labor, and second of all, as labor that needs to be understood intersectionally. That is by considering how the larger structural forces of power exacted different costs from child who was white and Shad who was black. Now, I was guided in this work by some of the qualitative research that I'd done over the course of the project that had surfaced editorials like this one written by Shad, talking about the fact that even among women, she had to work harder than her white counterpart. She says here, quote, we feel confident that few, if any, females have had to contend against the same obstacles that I have and that she had in the process of editing her paper. So the question then became, could I use data or language modeling to surface this outlay of work? And so this particular project required that I re-enlist some collaborators from previous points in the project in order to develop a more targeted model of language change. So uh, two people joined me in this project, Sandeep Soni, who's a postdoc at Berkeley um, in computer science there, and Jacob Eisenstein, who was at Georgia Tech at the time, who is now at Google Research. And what we did was develop a model that could track changes in the meanings of the words in our corpus on the basis of diachronic word embeddings. And we can talk a little bit more about the technical uh, methods behind this later if you feel like it. Um, we also developed a metric that could determine which newspaper was responsible for introducing each changed meaning and then which newspaper was the next to pick it up. And so when we took, the, took these two pieces and we put them together, they allowed us to explore how certain political concepts like freedom or like justice, how these words evolved as they moved from the margins to the mainstream of this abolitionist discourse. And more importantly, in terms of the labor involved in this work of change, we could see who was responsible for these words evolution. And just a quick note here about how other principles of data feminism enter in. So in keeping with this feminist principle of not just examining power, but also challenging it, I was very intent on developing a modeling approach that would allow us to go beyond simply confirming that imbalances of labor and credit existed in our data set. You know, this fact has been known by scholars for decades. Our goal was to contribute a large-scale, statistically sound, quantitative set of results that could contribute to a new story about how this work of abolition actually took place. So one of the things we did in addition to identifying individual words and who had introduced them or who had helped to change their meaning was that we aggregated these word changes by newspaper in order to look at overall trends. 
And we found two things, um, both of which were surprising. So you see up on the top left of this chart, um, the word, the letters PF, which stands for Shad's paper, the provincial freeman. Um, and so again, I can talk a little bit more about the details here, but this plot confirms that this paper innovated in new word meanings in far greater proportion to the meanings that it adopted from others. Um, so just sort of put more simply, in addition to Shad's sort of ideological claims that she was trying to do something more radical than her fellow newspaper editors, um, that, and this was really costing her, she was actually also innovating at the level of discourse. So she was influencing the way people, the way this broader community spoke about the topics under debate. But then next to Shad's paper, another one of these influencers is the one labeled Lily. Um, this is short for the Lily, which is a white women's suffrage newspaper, which initially we had included in our data set just as a way to compare the sort of core abolitionist newspaper set to papers that were being published at the same time that were cover, covering related topics. Um, and actually, um, one of the, the things about the women's suffrage movement in the United States is that um, many of its women contributors who are predominantly white made explicitly anti-Black racist claims. And so we face this interesting and sort of perplexing and somewhat problematic result. What does it mean that the Lily is up there, which we had confirmed through sort of like multiple permutation tests, the Lily is up there confirmed as innovating in this discourse, this abolitionist discourse too. And so I'm just going to wrap things up a little bit quickly here in order to get to our final takeaways. But I'll just say that I've been sitting with these results for a few months now. And my best take at the moment with respect to the particular domain at hand is that it shows us something that we sort of already knew to be true, which is that words don't always reflect the actual beliefs, let alone the actions of those who speak them. Um, and in reality, the discourse of any social movement, it's shaped by a wide range of sources, not all of them very easily allied in their belief systems or even centered on a common cause. Um, and I think in terms of our takeaways for the abolitionist movement, it's really important to recognize this complexity for what it is and not try to sort of sweep the anti-Blackness of certain parts, parts of the movement, just sort of sweep it under the rug. Um, but on a higher level, what I think this shows is that how a feminist approach to data science doesn't end with the output of any particular model or any particular formal experiment. We need to continue to question the results of that particular analysis, asking what we can learn from the data and then what we can't, or what we could never learn from data alone. We also need to make sure to place our results in their social, cultural, and historical context, um, both by quantitative and qualitative means. And then finally, we really need to continue to interrogate our own roles as researchers and scholars, especially for someone like me, a white scholar who focuses on the history of slavery, as we attempt to enlist ourselves in the task of challenging power and continuing to work towards justice. So just to wrap up, uh, if it isn't already apparent, um, the principles of data feminism apply to really every stage of a data science project from inception and funding, which probably are the most important stages <laughs> uh, to you know, leadership, to production, circulation and impact in the world. Um, and then our final point before we go to the Q&A um, it's probably obvious from all the examples that we've given, but uh, data feminism really does require an expanded definition of uh, data, data work, and data science. Uh, so our data science isn't defined by the size of the data set. Uh, it's not defined by the technical credentials of the people undertaking the work. Uh, these are things that are continually used to exclude women and people of color from the field as well as to exclude work whose contribution is socio-technical rather than purely technical. Um, but if we expand our definition of data science and what we're interested in is data science um, at this intersection of justice or data science for social good, as they say, um, then we can see really clearly that some of the most exciting work in data science today is being undertaken by artists, by journalists, humanists, community organizers, librarians, archivists, and activists. Um, 
And some of it does look like traditional data science and gets published in research papers. And a lot of it does not, as you can see here with examples of uh, data murals, data sculptures and data journalism. Um, and so we have hundreds of examples like this in the book, which we selected to illustrate our points and inspire readers to action. Um, because while we do recognize that data is at the root of many problems of inequality today, we do think that it can also be part of the solution. So thank you so much. Again, a real honor to be here. And um, here are many ways to be in touch with us uh, and connect. And we look forward to your questions. Thank you. Okay. Thank you very much to um, Catherine and Lauren for that really fascinating and, uh, and, and thought-provoking uh, talk. Um, we've got a huge number of questions um, and, uh, you know, wide ranging from researchers in universities, uh, government, charities um, from all over the world. Um, so let me try to pick um, a couple of them. And uh, I think um, the audience may have to take um, Catherine and Lauren's offer uh, to, uh, to be in touch after the event to, to, uh, to follow up. Um, should I start with a question from Hattie Simpson from London? She says, how do we see and what are the consequences of other examples of gender bias in data? For example, ignoring um, those who identify as non-binary. Yeah, so I think this is a great question and uh, something that we talk about at some length in our chapter, which is about rethinking binaries and hierarchies, um, which is that, that chapter is really about categories and classifications. Um, and in particular drawing from feminist theorists who have thought about the gender binary for a very long time and pushed back against the gender binary for a very long time um, on the grounds that, um, you know, while we kind of inherit this idea, this sort of received wisdom idea that there's two genders, uh, feminist theorists would say, well, actually, like, that's hiding a hierarchy, because it's not like two genders on equal footing. It's like men are up here, women are here. Um, but the second critique would be um, that, in fact, uh, you know, when you're faced with a binary, uh, you're, it's probably the wrong category, because <laughs> the world is typically more complex than a binary. Uh, and we see that certainly play out in gender, in which we have far more than two genders. Um, and I just say that as an empirical statement. Um, and so, I mean, I think it's right to point out like what harm do we do when we enact this common sense idea of gender, when we like bake that into our data sets or into our products or into our surveys um, where we just kind of don't interrogate that and just are like, okay, yeah, gender is a binary. Um, and I think there's there's numerous harms, but then the, the way to address it isn't necessarily that straightforward either. Um, so the first thing is, is sort of the harm of erasure, right? We are erasing uh, non-binary or any kind of gender identity that falls outside of the binary identities. Um, and we are also perpetuating the myth that gender is a binary. There's like communicative narrative work that even our surveys do, right? Or even our data visualizations do when we visualize gender data as a binary, we are saying gender is a binary. We are endorsing that. Um, and so there's a way in which we're buying into that myth, which is an empirically wrong myth. That said, it's not always easy to, um, like I said earlier, um, it's not always straightforward to, okay, like, you know, you would say, okay, well, let's just count, like, we'll just collect any kind of gender data uh, and like collect non-binary genders. Um, and yet at the same time, depending on what you're collecting data for, um, you may risk exposing people who don't, uh, who are not, who don't identify with the binary, but you may risk exposing them as in that way to institutions that may want to harm them. And so it may not be advisable um, to collect um, more than binary gender data as well. So like, there's no like general case answer. This has to be kind of um, undertaken with context and with care. And again, with a kind of a power analysis for uh, kind of what you're doing and what are the risks and harms that might result. Um, Lauren, I don't know if you wanna take that any further. Oh yeah, no, that was that was a really good answer. Why don't we um, 
why don't we try to get a couple more questions in? Okay. Um, another a question that was uh, that, that struck a chord with other um, uh, uh, audience members was um, from Lucero um, Pinero. Um, is there a way to predict, with the help of algorithms, when women will will suffer violence, and um, and what we, what can we do with that information? Just uh, summarizing that question very briefly. Um, yeah, I don't know if Catherine has more specific responses to this question with respect to uh, domestic violence or gender-based violence in particular, but maybe I will just add on to a point that Catherine was talking about with respect to collecting data on about people who may themselves be at particular risk for harm, um, which is that one of the things that we always need to be attentive to, whether it's predictive algorithms, whether it's data collection, is something that we call the paradox of exposure, um, which may even be conceptualized more generally as the fact that data can really be a very double-edged sword. So the exact same algorithm that could be used in very specific cases to identify people at risk, to intervene, um, may be the one, for example, that sends unwanted police presence to someone's door, which, which escalates into a situation because of the ways that we know, at least in the United States, how policing is racist, right? Ends up with the same person who called for protection, who was identified as in need of protection, themselves potentially being harmed, right? And the very same thing is true for data collection as well. Sometimes we're seeking to speak out against erasure, to hold the space for people who occupy small percentages or small uh, portions of a particular population. But those same people are themselves at risk for greater harm. And because they're just a very sort of proportionally very small part of a larger data set, even in a large data set, they can be potentially sort of singled out and identified and therefore be placed at greater risk, which is just a long way of saying that we need to think very, very carefully um, and intentionally about any algorithmic or data-driven solution or intervention into a complicated problem that involves these questions of power. Because especially as scholars, I actually think this is something that researchers do not think of a lot because we're often on the sort of experimental or hypothetical side of things. We sort of like to test out a proof of concept. But when these models and when these methods are unleashed into the world, we can no longer control who is using them and for what purposes. Um, So we just need to think very, very carefully about um, both the uses and the limits and the potential harms of the methods and tools and data that we're collecting. Thank you, Lauren. Do we have, uh, I don't know if Catherine, did you have anything to add or should I move on to another question? I'll just add a very quick kind of example in response to the topic of the question, which is there's a um, example that you might want to look at from a northern province in Argentina, where they were attempting to predict uh, teenage pregnancies with an algorithm. Um, And but then, of course, like where the pregnancies were happening, who was going to have these, you know, predicted pregnancies, um, were in fact, um, the folks who, of mostly indigenous background who were living in poor areas. And so what this became was like another way to sort of stigmatize and target um, an already stigmatized and targeted population. And so I think this is um, this is where when we flip from a sort of data to describe a phenomenon to data to predict a phenomenon, where I think this is where we can run into a lot of risks um, because again, we're using data that are coming from deeply unequal um, social circumstances and using those to predict a future of deeply unequal (laughs) social circumstances. And even more, we're using group-based data to then apply those to individual people's lives. And so we're actually like transmuting scale as well. And I think that 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 makes this particularly risky and like even more risky um, when applied to problems of social inequality like teenage pregnancy or like, uh, you know, predicting domestic violence or something like this. Thank you. If we could just um, perhaps ask one more question. It just is so topical um, from um, um, Dorota Chapko um, from London. Um, How does feminist data science inform research and action on climate change? 
and the other way around? That's such a good question. And I think what I'll say, I'll just go back to what I said at the very beginning, you know, climate change is, you know, again, one of these large structural issues, which in itself is affected and also influenced by unequal power, right? So we've seen how, and we've, you know, everyone knows this, right? The effects of climate change are both, or both climate change is produced unequally, right? So the, the contributors to climate change, the major polluters are coming from the US, from China, from these big industrialized countries. And the effects are experienced predominantly in sea level rise and rising temperatures in extreme weather in the global South, right? Um, and the same thing applies to people of different genders, um, people of different races, these effects are experienced unequally. And so we need to think about climate change as, again, you know, one of these other issues, which is subject to questions of power, which has unequal effects, and we need to be attentive to those. And I think one of the ways that we can work towards a feminist approach here is certainly quantitatively um, by incorporating these dimensions of identity and oppression or privilege on the other hand into our data analyses. But we also need to make sure to talk to representatives of these groups to find out how particularly in particular places with respect to particular people, how individuals and groups are being affected. And we need all of this, right? You know, a, a general, a feminist approach involves not excluding solutions, but bringing additional ways of addressing problems to the table and figuring out ways that they can fit together and enhance each other. Okay, I think unfortunately we have to wrap up now. This has been a, a hugely popular uh, event and uh, I think we can see that reflected in the, in the questions that have been uh, asked. Um, thank you so much to Lauren and to Catherine uh, for taking the time to join us today. And thank you to everyone in the audience.